turn to the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Beloved, we are precisely who God says we are. And who does He say we are in Ephesians? Blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and sealed by Him. In Christ, we are the glorious church, the body of Christ on earth, whom Paul says this morning is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I was thinking of another movie, came out in the early 90s or mid-90s. I, I can't recommend it to you to watch anymore. That was a long time ago for me. But at the end of the movie, it was like a, a romantic comedy of sorts. At, uh, at the end, after some you know, intense conflict and a, a separation of this couple that was in love, the man comes literally running back into the house of the woman he loves and tells her in front of all her friends, that basically no matter what successes he has in his life, no matter how good things can get, it doesn't mean anything because without her, his life is incomplete. It's really a beautiful moment in the movie. And he says to her that now very famous movie line, you complete me. It's a great moment in the context of the movie. The text this morning says that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So do Paul's words there in verse 23 mean that we somehow complete Jesus and that he was incomplete without us? Or does it mean that as the church, we are filled by the one who is the fullness of God? As Paul will pray for us to be specifically later in chapter 3 verse 19, which really just implies that Paul prays for the church to know who she is. We don't complete Jesus in the sense that He was lacking Godness. But in God's sovereign design, He has married His plan, literally, to unite all things in His Son to the Son's redemption of the church whom He calls His bride. As the head over everything, all things, God has given Jesus to His church incorporating us, therefore, into His authority over all things and His plan to unite all things in Him. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we come before You this morning for mercy and for grace and for understanding. Lord, please fill me with Your Spirit. Anoint me for this task of preaching. And I ask in your mercy, God, that you would open the ears and the eyes of the hearts of everyone in this room, that we all may hear and believe and understand. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this text, we're going to look at 15 through 23 of chapter 1, is just two sentences in nine verses. When Paul does something like that, he's trying to tell us something very specific that he doesn't want the train of thought broken up. He wants to keep it together so that he can tell us why he's telling us all this wonderful news. So we pick it up in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is thankful due to the faith and brotherly love in the Ephesian church, which shows him two things, which is why he's so 
thankful that they have indeed received and believed on the gospel, first of all. And secondly, if there's genuine brotherly love, then they are being the church. They're affirming the words of Jesus all the way back in John 13, 35, that the church would be known by our love for one another. That's how the world would know that we belong. We are something that is the possession uniquely of Jesus Christ. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, which is plural here, the church, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. There are three words there. The Holy Spirit imparts these things to us. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge. First of all, what Paul prays for them to possess here can only be given to them by God. So this has to be prayed for before any attempt is made to accomplish any of it. Paul prays that God would give the ones he's done all these wonderful things for, which we read about in verses 3 through 14, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's already told us that the Spirit sealed us. Now that same Spirit who does the sealing of our hearts must also be the one to grant us wisdom and revelation as it pertains to or in the knowledge of God. So not just knowledge about God. Anybody could pick up a Bible, read the Bible, and collect facts about who God is, or at least what the Scripture says or describes God is. But this isn't that kind of knowledge. This is more intimate knowledge of who God is for His people as their Redeemer and what He is doing, because that's what He is. What the Spirit knows of God is what Paul wants the church, you and I, to know of God. It's something he prays for for each one of them. This knowing isn't something that we'll find out subjectively through our experiences. right? It's, it's, it's not that kind of knowledge, but through the gift we saw in verse 9 of God's enlightening grace. It's that knowledge, unique knowledge that only the family has. God wants us to know, to know Intimately, what He has revealed to us, not just as facts to which we assent and with which we agree, but to have the knowledge of God that only His children can have because He's only revealed it to them. The church is so blessed in this world by His grace. He wants us to learn. He wants the Ephesian church, Paul wants the Ephesian church to learn this so that it becomes the source of their wisdom, that which the Spirit reveals, not the world not the flesh. And here is how the Spirit will grant this in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So the things God would have us know are not things then that the human eye can see or the human mind can comprehend through its own means of knowledge. To know what God wants us to know will require the supernatural enlightening of our souls. The church sees with her heart, not with her eyes. This isn't inviting mainly a, you know, a, a mystical form of religion or a subjective form of religion. We like to talk nowadays about your journey and my journey and all these things. And of course, there's an element of that that is true. But these are all things outside of us that all of us need, and we need the exact same things, the exact same knowledge of God. And He gifts this through His Spirit to every believer. 
everyone in the church. This means that the wisdom God wants in us is the wisdom that is Christ. And therefore can only be gained by the Spirit who reveals the knowledge of Him to us that we might have true wisdom. Specifically the wisdom of, as he continues in verse 18, what is the hope to which He has called you? What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? You see three words again. Hope, riches, and greatness, or power. And these are things the Spirit continues to reveal to us, is always revealing to us. Hope, first of all, he means specifically their hope in Christ. God has called us to this. It is his divine gift. Christians are those who hope in Christ and in no other thing for their life and for their salvation. That's what it is to believe the gospel. It's to possess the hope that this God is going to do what He promises. That's of first importance to God, that His Spirit is revealing to us what that hope is so that we don't forget it and don't move on from it. It's a sure hope fixed on an eternal promise from God. It's the hope of mothers. The sure hope that's fixed in heaven for them, the hope of Christ, not the hope that my kids will turn out exactly the way I want them to or my home will go exactly the way I want it to. We don't find hope in these things. We find hope in Christ, sure hope, actual hope fixed on the eternal promise of God. So Paul isn't praying for us to have the feeling or the emotion of hope. Human beings all over the place can have that without the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the point here is not that we would believe or or say, I hope all this is true. That's not the hope he wants us to have. This hope comes from what God has called us to and reveals to us now through his Holy Spirit. So our salvation, our hope is not something we create or bring about. It's the result of God's blessing, predestining, adopting, redeeming, forgiving, Enlightening and sealing grace towards us. Love towards us. We have hope. And God wants His Spirit to grant us the knowledge of the hope to which He has called us. He wants us to have it. And we need the Spirit to enlighten our hearts so that we keep hoping in Christ. That in Romans 5, 5, a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A certain kind of hope. The second thing, to know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now you talk about a reason for hope. This is an amazing passage. God will grant to Jesus... All that God has promised Him as our Redeemer, including us. The inheritance of us. That's why Jesus talks the way that He does in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6.39, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In John 10, 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. When your hope is in short supply, when your faith is weak, preach to yourself the truth of the gospel again and again and again, that Jesus has you and he will never lose you. Ever. Look back to verses 7 through 10 for a moment. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That's the wealth that saves me. The riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. This is what He's talking about in verses 15 to 23 making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything comes together in Christ, including you and I. God has lavished the riches of His grace on us so that we would be given to the Son for all eternity. That is where the hope of my salvation is. In the promise of God, the riches of His grace... The one who doesn't lie. It is so sure that Jesus will receive his inheritance and I will receive my inheritance that God speaks in verse 11 as though we have already obtained it. Because that's the sufficiency of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Yes, we will receive our inheritance in verse 11, but beloved, Jesus Christ will also receive his in this text. God will not break His promises to us or to His Son. And God would have His Spirit make us know by enlightening the eyes of our hearts where faith resides that He has promised to give us to Christ. Thirdly, He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. How can we know The Spirit will be successful in granting and revealing these things to us. Who is responsible for realizing and attaining all of this? The immeasurable greatness of God's power that is at work in us. And then Paul gets specific. Right? What, not just this idea of power. What aspect of God's power is doing this in us in verse 19? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. What power is at work in us to bring about God's purpose in us? Resurrection power. Divine prerogative power. My will be done power. The power that is at work in us is the same power that gave literal life back to the dead body of Jesus Christ, and then installed the risen Christ as Lord of the universe at His own right hand. So the power that raises the dead and the power that runs, sustains, and rules the universe is at work right now in the hearts of all those in the church so that we would know by His Spirit the hope to which He has called us and the value we have to Him. As his inheritance. This is what God wants the church to know in chapter 1. Things that only his spirit can reveal to our hearts. Again, where faith resides. God fuels faith, not sight. 
things that depend on nothing I have to give to obtain, but depend completely on Him to give to me. Did you notice the phrase you and I have seen before, in the heavenly places there in verse 20? So much that is true for us is true in the heavenly places for me, for us on earth. Look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, now we're finding out, we're finding out why. Why is it that all our blessings are in the heavenly places? Beloved, because that's where Jesus is. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the very one who sits right now at God's right hand as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord of all. The blessings are where the power that grants them is. Therefore, what He promises us cannot be moved. It isn't going anywhere. God's Word, His Word of saving grace over you is as sure as the reign of His Son. What He would have us know deep inside our souls at the very heart of who we are is that we belong to Him forever and ever. Paul often writes like this before he tells us to do anything or what we must do in light of this. He tells us what God has done, what is true, what is sure, what can't be changed, whether or not I'm struggling to understand or to obey it. For our Savior, the one who purchased and granted all of this to us in real time is risen and seated at the right hand of God. In verse 21, by the way, far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There are two ages existing simultaneously, overlapping one another, one We live in by grace through faith. We see with the eyes of our hearts. The other is this. And there's nothing in the universe, seen or unseen, as these two ages, the one to come that has come in Christ, begun in Christ, inaugurated in Christ, will one day be consummated and revealed in Christ. There's not a ruler there or here nor an authority, nor a possessor of it, not a power or dominion of any size or of any kind, nor is there a name in all human history, past, present, or future, that is above the rule and authority and power and dominion and name of Jesus Christ, our Father, who is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and has promised to grant us all these things, has given Christ His authority To do this, our Christ, our Savior, our Shepherd, our Lord, not only in this age, the present age of sin and darkness and evil, and of the church, by the way, but also He is above every rule and authority and power and dominion and name in the age to come, in eternity, where we will dwell with Him and He with us, where He will be our God and we will be His people in a new heaven and a new earth. And the question might remain in us, well, can evil enter there? Will Satan tempt and lie and murder again there? No. 
He is and then will one day finally be defeated. Beloved, never again because Jesus is the installed Lord over even Satan. And in verse 22, he put all things under his feet. And then here it is, beloved. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Do you see in this text what God has given to us in Christ? This isn't a list of bragging rights for Jesus. It's not merely a description of his power and authority. This is God through the Holy Spirit in the hand of Paul telling us that the one who is the head of the church and under whose feet lie everything has been given to us as that. God made Jesus the head of everything and then gave him to the church for the benefit of the church, beloved, you and I. Remember, this is my territory. This is your territory. The evil one is just borrowing it on borrowed time. Beloved, there's not a moment in time, not a millisecond or a place on the earth or under the earth, over which Jesus Christ is not reigning, over which He does not say, Mine. Everywhere we go or could go, Jesus is Lord. And as the head of everything, as that Lord, He's been given to the church. That's what we have. Which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all in verse 23. Now, up to this point in Scripture, when Paul would use the metaphor, or when Paul has used the metaphor of a body to describe the church, his point has been our diversity. The many different parts of this one body working together. But here, the point of the body metaphor is our oneness. The fact that we are one body despite The fact that there are various parts. And of that body, Jesus Christ is the head. Now that's new in the course of Scripture to the body metaphor. That the head of that body, the source of its growth, that is, the head is Christ. It's Jesus. And beloved, how this body grows, or more specifically what Jesus means when He's talking about the growth of the church, that is a major component In Ephesians. We'll see that as we get into chapter 4. But the church then, if that's true, the church doesn't try to accomplish or create unity. Right? The church needs to believe what Christ has done and realize its unity. We are one. We need to submit ourselves to the fact that God has made us one and therefore intends us to be one. So when I want something that will divide, that will get in the way, that isn't of Christ, and we need to make sure we know the difference between what we want and what He wants, and it's very easy, we just aren't honest about it. When I begin to realize that my desires will interrupt the oneness that Christ has given us, I need to repent. I need to back off. Our oneness is not achieved through techniques or personality tests or spiritual gift inventories. How do we ever let a chart and a piece of paper dictate to us who we were in the body of Christ? 
Our unity, our oneness is objectively true because of the gospel. The church is the one body of Jesus Christ. We're divided up all over the place, not to Christ. That's on us, not Him. We are His one body in the world where He is the one head of everything. Everything. Beloved, do we understand the implications then of the role of the church in society, in our world? Do we know what this says about us, that, that we are the body of Jesus exclusively? We've been grafted into a vine. We've been made a part of one body, one flock, with one head. So in some sense, first of all, beloved, all these earthly and satanic powers are under our feet because they are under His feet. If we would believe that, it would change the game. It would change the game. So we have to stop thinking of the warfare we're involved in as physical or territorial. This is, this is a... An American problem, this territorial idea. The purpose of the church in the world is not to take back territory from the enemy. The winner and loser of this battle is not in doubt. The issue is not undecided. The victor is not unknown. We aren't fighting to try to get Jesus to be the king. We don't have to force or fight with earthly powers or people in any way, shape, or form for Jesus to win. Why? Because God has seated him at the place of highest authority in the universe. His right hand. That's where Jesus is now. Jesus has won. Jesus has overcome. Jesus is Lord. The existence of the church is the proof of this. Again, go back to Hebrews. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. It is, but we don't see it. Therefore, that's one of the reasons why we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. But we see Him. We see Jesus. Where is He? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why does that matter to me? Because it lets me know that it's over. That he wins, that he can keep his promises, he can keep his word. That we, by virtue of being in him, are blessed and adopted and predestined and loved and sealed and all these things, beloved. We often act like we're fighting for victory, beloved. No, we're fighting from victory. The church exists as the text will reveal. To proclaim that God's plan to accomplish His purpose has succeeded. It's being worked out. And now Jesus is walking through the world in the body that is His church to bring sinners to salvation from every nation. Because He's victorious. As Colossians tells us, He triumphed, past tense, over evil through His death on the cross. That's why we're witnessing, because it's over We are the preview of the end. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's bringing evil to its final defeat. It's consummated. 
defeat and His judgment and return. Evangelism is the proclamation of victory. And the news that this reigning and victorious King is offering amnesty to the rebels before the end comes. You ever hear people say the phrase, it depends on who the president is. You see the bumper stickers and stuff. He's not my president, right? Whether or not a person is president in that equation depends on how you feel about them, whether they were duly elected or not, right? And that's not pro any one candidate. Every four years, there's people saying that about the guy who got elected, whether, you know, it's fairly done or not. The president is the president. It doesn't matter what you say. He's not my president. Beloved, it doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what culture says. He's not my Lord. Yes, He is. He's, every, he's your Lord right now. You understand Jesus is the center of your life right now. Either you are pursuing Him as the center, or you are running from Him as the center. But He is your Lord. It's not up to a vote. Right? This isn't a democracy. The world is not that. Right? God runs this world. His Son reigns over this world. His Spirit is at work to bring all things in subjection to Him in this world. Through us, through the church. How? Through salvation. Through the gospel. He is our Lord. The Great Commission is the result of great redemption and great victory. We don't need to fear the powers that be. They're not threatening anything eternal. Nothing. Or governments, or authorities, or the ones pushing all the buttons behind the scenes. We don't need to fear them either. Jesus is already Lord of all. Just everybody doesn't know that yet, or they're mad at Him for it. We aren't fighting to win in this world. This is cleanup. This is the day of amnesty. Because He's won and He's returning, literally, bodily, gloriously, and every eye will see Him. When Jesus Christ ascended back to the Father's right hand, the dominion of Jesus as head and Lord of everything commenced, beloved. Do we know this, that this is who we are? Our feelings will never match our identity. That's why we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. I need to see without my eyes. I need to feel without touching. Right? Beloved, we need this. And this is the gift of the Spirit's work in us. All of us should always be pressing in to God in prayer, on our knees, in His Word, studying, learning. You all have the Holy Spirit. You believers do study His Word, learn His Word, dig into His Word. He will meet you there. We need more than our own knowledge. You need more than my knowledge, what I might be able to give to you on any given Sunday. You need more than me, beloved. We are the body of the one who is the head of all things. Apparently, I could tell you that till I'm blue in the face, but the Spirit will have to make it true in you. I can't do that. So why do we as Christians live like we are always behind the eight ball? And evil is just running rampant, and so we're always on the defensive. There's so much fretting. 
even from me. The way I sometimes talk about the nations or the mission or evangelism and things, and I, it, it's like I'm so worried about it not happening. You know, and I, I, I don't, I, I ask you to forgive me for that. This, uh, what Brian Wolfmuller calls a great author, evangelism anxiety. Like, I, I don't know if it'll happen. No, it, it'll happen. God's will will be done. So forgive me for being fearful. We, we, we don't minister from fear. We don't minister from uncertainty, but from confidence and hope and grace and resurrection power, beloved. Not of the self. Don't look to yourselves. I can do this. No, you can't. Doesn't matter what it is. What my, if you know me at all, you know that I hate shortened words and goofy phrases and I, I like the, the word veggie. I, I, my central nervous system shuts down. Like you, you don't need to shorten words with, with three syllables. Like grow up. Who says veggie that isn't five years old? Right? This drives me nuts. Here's a phrase. You got this. First of all, it's, it's bad grammar, which is atrocious. But you, you like your kid will be up the bat. We used to do this to poor little Sophia. Sophia, you got this. Poor little thing struck out every single time. She never got that. <laughs> right? It, it, you got this. We need to, beloved, all of that. I know, I know that's, that's silliness. So trust me. I know you don't have to come up to me after the service and say, I like to say veggie because I don't care. You don't have to tell me. It's, you don't owe me anything. That's a personal thing. I just, I'm, I'm weird. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. My point is, is that we have this mentality that what's happening here is God giving you the goods and then saying, now, take it and run with it. No, no, no. He's given us His Spirit. Because I cannot believe this. I cannot cling to it. I cannot hope in it. I can't accomplish what I'm called to. The church cannot accomplish what it's called to by seeing with our eyes. Right? And so we, this is prayed for. We need this. I need this. The church should always be praying for this. It, it, nothing that God wants to do ultimately depends on you and I. We are instruments. We are not what makes it or breaks it. We have that phrase, and I understand what's meant by it, that uh, you might be the only Bible people ever read. Well, then those people are going to hell. You might be the only Jesus someone ever sees. Then those people are going to hell because you and I aren't the Word of God, and we aren't Jesus. We are His body. He is the head. I need to point them to Christ, not to me. Look at what Jesus did in me. And so our testimony is my change. No, 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 no. My change is a result of the Spirit in me, and I didn't produce it. It's not the story. It doesn't save. We are the church. We aren't a hall of mirrors. We are like a human body carrying out the will and desire and reign of our head. We call the world to repentance now, not as an invitation per se, but as a command. You need to repent of your sins and be reconciled to God. You're commanded to, and in His mercy are invited to right now. But the day will come when the invitation stops, and all there is, is the command we chose not to obey. 
but He is full of mercy. Repentance is a command because salvation has been accomplished. Repentance before the blood of Christ was spilled to command people to repent was to command them to nothing. Now, do this because it's done for you and for me in Christ. Sins have been covered. They've been forgiven. Death is defeated. Evil is on borrowed time. Bow your knee to Jesus. All of that is proof that He reigns. Your mom and dad believing in Jesus. Your child believing in Jesus. People in our town believing in Jesus and praising Him and worshiping Him. That is all evidence that He's in charge. That wouldn't happen if He wasn't reigning. Those under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, looked forward to this same Christ in the things God gave to them, but it's always Christ that saves. To be a part of the church in this world is to be His body, whom the text calls, again in verse 23, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Do you hear the beautiful redundancy there? If, if, if He fills everything, how, is, how are we His fullness? Because He doesn't fill everything with us. We are the fullness of the one who fills everything. What does that mean? Beloved, beyond comprehension. Um, I think in my head even now of better ways I, I could have written it down to explain. Beyond comprehension. It means that God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ would not be complete without the church. God has married His Son and the accomplishment of His purpose to the church, to you and I, which means God must really be confident in Jesus because He didn't put the weight of the world on our back. He put it on His. Church, don't, don't get defeated by the tyranny of the big. we got to save the world. Beloved, you are here for your neighbor, for your family for your friends, for your own circle. If God wants you beyond that, He will make it known to you. But in everyday life, and things like mowing the grass, and changing diapers, and going to work, and honoring our boss, and respecting our leaders, and all these things, beloved, we are doing the good works that glorify our Father in heaven. He's called us to vocations, to steward things. Don't get in your mind that the only way to serve the Lord is to do things at church. That's a part of it. That's wonderful. But beloved, in your role as mom, as dad, as husband, as wife, as child, as student, as employee, as civil servant, whatever it is, as soul, whatever it is, God is glorified in our obedience to Him as the body of Christ. You never stop being that. You don't step in and out of your role in the body of Christ. Who you are is who you are in the body of Christ. Don't think this. Don't think like this is the the uh, the apex of it. I, um, Jacob, I know he's not sitting here, and I'm not. It was funny we were talking the other night, and just about how we really hope that our daughters can find good Christian guys to marry. That that age group is pretty scarce in the church. And Jacob was kind of jokingly saying, "What if we took a field trip, like to a seminary, where all these future pastors will be?" And I would say to that, don't make your daughter, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to marry pastors. <laughs> like it's not all it's cracked up to be. Do you know what our wives have to put up with from us and all these things? It, it, 
That has nothing to do with the text. Just don't do that. Don't make them think that you got to marry a pastor to... Don't... No, 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 no. It's just, you're, you're just a guy that preaches the Bible, hopefully. God designed all things so that His Son... So this is the design of God. It's not speaking to something lacking in Christ. That that's, would be horrible to believe. Nothing is lacking in Christ. God designed all things so that His Son, this plan, would not be complete as the head of all things without us. Right? Our salvation is proof of His reign. It's not the only proof, but it's maybe the most important or visible proof. Do we hear the glorious news Ephesians is telling us this morning that from before the foundation of the world, God has had one plan to unite all things in Jesus. And our salvation means not only do all things lay conquered under his feet, but under ours for the sake of Christ. So let the accuser roar against us. Let government say we can't speak. Let them try to stamp us out and get rid of the Bible and get rid of truth. Let all people say what we're guilty of. They're right, we're guilty. We're sinners. But God is the one who justifies. And He put the Savior at His right hand. Christ Jesus is the one who died. The one who rules over everything has said of me, not guilty, redeemed, victorious, alive. He's Lord over even the just and righteous demand of the law. Come to Jesus. Don't go anywhere else. Text speaks of the church in verse 23, mainly that which is full of something or someone. The church is full of Christ, beloved. And the present participle here means that this filling is taking place all the time. He's always filling. Always doing this in and for us continuously. We're being filled, you and I, by the one who himself is filled by God. Paul in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, all the fullness of God dwells in the body of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the body of Jesus Christ? The church. We aren't God, but we are filled by Him. We really are in Christ this morning, believer. We really are. One with Him. One with His forgiveness, one with His righteousness, one with His reign, one with His plan and purpose. In Ephesians, Paul is just telling the church what it means to be the church. And it's so unearthly for the earthly. He's telling us who we are now that we are in Christ. So, do we see now in light of that text and what it tells us, why the pettiness of our little tribal arguments and squabbles and preferences and traditions, do we understand why that is so dangerous and so distracting? It's not about the pastor's plan for the church and, and people getting in the way of that plan. It's that anything, anything that isn't this should not be here. There isn't, a church is not a group of people that have decided to come together and do things for God. Therefore, it's all about us. No, 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 no. This is a group of people who, first of all, have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, to display through the proclamation of the gospel mainly that saves, that this Savior is the Lord of 
everything. And so the church is not a place for me, because this is how we talk, right? It's not a place for me to live out and fulfill and get what my purposes and plans are. This is why we use phrases like my ministry. Well, my ministry is this. My ministry is that. There's no language like that. Right? That's because what we do, we, we set ourselves in a corner ready to fight. Because why don't you take away my ministry? You're telling God the only thing you can do is the thing you want to do and like to do and prefer. And the church is just destined for war at that point. And we're, we're the body of Christ. The old Adam is alive and well in the heart of God's people. So thank God for Jesus Christ. Do we realize that Satan has concentrated the bulk of his forces against the church? Mainly. That's what he's doing. Trying to stamp us out and get rid of us. And I believe that one day he will be completely unleashed to do just that before the end. But Ephesians was written to remind the church in every age that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against these powers, the powers of this present darkness in our world. So if we aren't fighting them, we are fighting the wrong fight. Satan loves it when we fight each other. You know, one thing is necessary for the church. One thing, to believe in and proclaim Jesus Christ. And all the fruit of what that means that we find in Scripture. As the head over all things, God has given Jesus to His church, incorporating us into His authority over all things, and His plan to unite all things in Him. No church is my church. This is my church. No, no, no. Semantics reflect what we actually think. Every church is His church. And if we don't believe that, we need to repent and be reconciled to God in that thinking, for we exist for much greater purposes than our own. We are filled with Christ. And He reigns over all through our proclamation of the gospel. It's a statement of who actually runs the universe when we command people everywhere to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let him be all we're about. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and I. He reigns. Bow the knee to him. Amen.